Welcome to Honest Retail, the weekly podcast that dishes out the truth about the latest news, trends, and blunders from the CPG, consumer, and retail industries. Now, here are your hosts, Cameron McCarthy, Taylor Foxman, and Carlton Fowler. Hey everybody, welcome to episode six of Honest Retail. Very excited to be back with CJ and Taylor for another great episode. How are we both doing, CJ and Taylor? I'm doing great, Cameron. Um, other than you know the complete and total plant pollen apocalypse that is Austin in January. Apparently, no one told me about this. So if I if I sound kind of stuffed up, that's what's happening. Yeah, we had a few good moments with CJ before we started uh, recording today that he looked like an extra from Pineapple Express when he hopped on the call today. The call I had right before this was someone who was looking to break into the cannabis industry. I'm just sitting there being like, yeah, you know, here, here's some people I can introduce you to. Eyes uh, just like bright, puffy red. It's great. <laughs> Taylor, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, deep thawing. And I'm currently, I, I have this habit where I have this Columbia jacket vest that I've had since I was in my twenties and uh, I wear it when I'm cold and even inside. So for those of you who can't see me, that's great. But for, for CJ and for Cam, uh, you will take note that in my own apartment, I am wearing a full blown jacket. Cause right now, even though I've been living in the Northeast forever, I still am not accustomed to winter and constantly think about why I don't live somewhere warm, like where CJ is at the moment year round. So there's that. Yeah. But then fall will hit and then you'll spring will hit and you'll forget all about it. You'll be happy where you're at for the five days a year. <laughs> year. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, it's Taylor sticking with you. Any brands that caught your eye over the last week? Yeah, I sent you guys a text about this. I can't, I'm not, I'm sure I'm not pronouncing it right, but I hadn't heard of Siempra tequila before. Um, on the topic of tequila and celebrities, I won't go, we won't go down that rabbit hole again, but um, they did a release that I saw on Bevnet uh, that Siempra tequila aims to offer down to earth in quotes antidote to the celebrity brands. Um, don't really know exactly what they're doing with this, but caught my eye. So now I'm going to start looking into the tequila brand itself, but just generally the, the brand was new to me and also kind of their approach. Don't know if it's going to make sense. Don't know if it's going to work, but I at least understand where they're coming from and am intrigued to learn more. So more to come there. Nice. And how about you, CJ? Um, I'm going to do a shout out for my, my friend's company. Cause it just hooked me up with some, some new gear. It's called cricket. Um, it's, 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 it's uh, Austin, Austin companies that are, that are popping up like weeds. I've, I've been able to, to get to know a lot of them in the week or two I've been here and um, can't, can't recommend the shirts enough. Um, especially now that I have a closet full of them. Nice. Yeah. For me, so, um, Listerine, if you're listening, just give Taylor some Listerine and like, <laughs> we'll, we'll be able to, we'll be able to get the show on the road. Next week, I'm totally doing that with Listerine. So Listerine, watch out right now. Now that CJ has opened the floodgates, watch out, guys. Yes, please go back and listen to past episodes if this is your first one and you don't understand Taylor's love for for Listerine. Um, For me, it was uh, Graza olive oil. I ordered some last, uh, last week. Um, as a person who uses olive oil to cook with, to, to eat on bread, whatever, um, I was really excited by it because they have like a drizzle bottle. 
and then a sizzle bottle, and they're both definitively pretty different tasting, uh, like really easy to use, like squeeze top, um, really like the look. Um, and I just like, there's a lot of craft oil, olive oils coming to market right now. Uh, but it seemed like this one was pretty hyped up pre launch. And the experience did not disappoint. I was I was really excited by it. And uh, we'll probably continue to order that on a monthly basis. Awesome. Are you like a short? Are you like a like? I, I feel like the sheer amount of olive oils that you have, <laughs> I use cam spray and can't believe it's not butter. Like I'm from South Jersey. I literally have camp. I'm the only person outside of Listerine. If you're listening, can't believe it's not butter, but I, I am lowbrow and you, every time we talk to you are literally like recommending these like beautifully packaged, you know, like sustainably raised you know, olive oil, whatever. I'm, I'm just like listening to you. I'm just like, I, if he walked into my kitchen and saw my can't believe it's not butter spray, I feel like you'd be utterly mortified. I liked your shake and bake post on Twitter. Guys, are you not getting what I, 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 I shake and bake, can't believe it's not butter. I mean, the only elevated thing I have is Listerine, I guess. Yeah. Next uh, next episode, Cam's gonna show up on the video with like with an olive oil press. He's like, yeah, you know, I've really just gone straight to the source, you know, like just pressing my own olive oil now. And now I'm just gonna spray the butter into my mouth when he does. They'll run the gamut. Yep. <laughs> I feel like all of, so like for me, it's like, cause like I do like do all the cooking at home. So I like to like always have, try pantry samples, but like olive oil to me is like a tough thing. Like coffee when people are like, yeah, this coffee is better than this coffee. Like sometimes I'm just like, it's hard for me to, to, to differentiate between that. Olive oil is like one of the one things where I'm like, oh yeah, this is like crap. Oh, this is really good. Like where I'm able to kind of tell the difference. So I splurge a little bit just as I use it all the time. But yeah, it's like, uh, I, I will start pressing my own at this, uh, at this rate. It's probably more affordable. Cool. Well, let's jump into the first topic. Um, we've talked, we've touched on NFTs a few times in the past. Uh, I think CJ sent over or CJ or Taylor sent over this article um, earlier in the week. But the world's first NFT restaurant is coming to Manhattan next year. It's called the Fly Fish Club. Um, it's a dining club from VCR Group, um, Gary V, and then I believe the founder of Resi are part of VCR Group. So it's got a lot of great backing behind it. The company released over 1500 tokens that brought in over about 15 million dollars in for the company i guess the way that it's kind of working is that the token will buy you access into um, this restaurant i would say from what i've been reading about it, it's less of a restaurant and more of just kind of a club uh, i don't think you're going in there and finding you know a laberna den experience or anything on that level but i think that um, this is kind of um, showing again how these tokens can gain access uh, be used in a new creative way outside of the metaverse and into the real life. Uh, I definitely have some strong thoughts on this um, in this application, but CJ, why don't we kick it off with you and get your thoughts on it? I mean, the thing that's the most important here is that they brought in a $15 million without giving up 1% of equity. Um, like that's just a phenomenally differentiated business model and so much better for founders. So they get all in one drop, Massive amounts of marketing and media awareness, um, 1,500 incredibly incentivized customers who will then come in and use the restaurant, and $15 million to build the restaurant, and they still have a clean capital stack, you know, presuming that they didn't sell to someone else at the beginning. So, I mean, I look at that and say, like, how is that not a manifestly better model? Um, and, and I don't think it'll work for everything. I think it's really well suited for high end and, and 
and, and almost false scarcity in the restaurant world. Um, I think we're still going to figure out how to apply that to like a new, a, a, you know, a new CPG startup um, or, or something in retail. But gosh, I mean, like, like that, they basically just made VCs irrelevant in that, you know, in, in, in that particular transaction, which is phenomenal. That's great. Like I'm, I'm all before being disrupted if, if we can have really, really cool business models like this. Yeah, I think the cool thing too is, is like you're you're raising money, but then you're also securing your first wave of customers, which then through word of mouth is going to just continue to secure those future rounds or future level of customers because you know all those token holders are going to talk about how they're token holders. It's like this is very much like you know being in NFTs is the same way as like being gluten free or vegan, right? You tell everybody it's the first thing that you say to them, and and I think it's just kind of kind of spread out from there. Um, but Taylor would love to know your thoughts on it. Yeah, I, I thought this was a really cool story. I think it's really interesting, you know, fully agree with everything you guys said. I also thought I was reading something around this and I think but an interesting facet to also pull out is like, this is a kind of a case study and, you know, being able to own lease and sell memberships, which I thought was very cool too, um, which does differentiate itself from different types of models like this, I think, right? Like I'm part of Soho House, Soho Works. Um, and just, I think the ability to utilize this technology and, and this whole kind of innovation to now like, you can technically lease it out and sell it out too, which I thought was really cool. As well, yeah, and, and it's, yeah. I mean, apparently, and again, keep in mind we're in the middle of an NFT bull market. Like, I guess they're now, you know, the, the original license are changing hands for, almost 10x what they were paid for. And, and that's like that's evidence of the model working. That you, you created scarcity. It, you know, early, early movers adopted like and they can decide if either the social signal of owning that NFT is important to them or they want to cash it out. Like it's you know, I, I think it's really, really remarkable to build on what Cameron just said. Like when you're turning your best customers into evangelists on this level, that's that's when brands really really win and and before NFTs, i think you had to find other pretty unique ways to do it like tesla famously has no marketing budget um i think that like when you when you break down incentive structures and say hey you have this thing you paid for it um now i'm counting on you to go tell everybody about it and you really want to that's yeah. that's your marketing budget with your r d budget with your customer acquisition budget all rolled up into one and instead of paying for it they paid you I mean, like it's just, this is, it's phenomenal. Yeah. I think like for me, it's like, it's, it's so restrictive on who can participate probably right for this, right? It's super expensive, but I think it's only because it's the first wave. I think there's going to be a lot of people get hurt kind of in this first wave of NFTs, like lose a lot, especially people that maybe don't have, aren't financially set in the same way that a lot of people are that are thinking that they're going to make a lot of money off of it. There'll probably be a, a, you know, a crash or just kind of a reshuffling and then, you know, two or three years down the line, we'll be at kind of a little bit more of a final form of what this all looks like. But I'm interested in, okay, great, like a high-end dining club where only 1,500 people can get in and it's super expensive, isn't accessible to everybody. Like, how does that look to the common person? Uh, and I do think, like, buying tickets is going to be much different in the future or making a reservation is going to be much different in the, in, in the future um, or even, you know, joining just like a, a club or something like that is going to be much different. Um, and so that's where I think kind of trickles down to the everyday person, because I don't know if this application is going to see, be seen as most people is like, oh yeah, that's the future. Everything's going to be like that because it is super restrictive. So I'm just interested in where you guys think this is going or where are the future iterations of this? 
I mean, we, we are we already have models that prove that artificial scarcity works. Just the actual like go to market models kind of broken. Like Black Black Friday, anyone people getting trampled, sprinting into malls, like that can be fixed with with, with NFTs. Um, you, you know, if you're looking for a more mass market example, like Target doing its merchandise drops with high end designers, like. Those things sell it immediately. Like that, like that's something that's sold by NFTs. Like, like I, th I think you'll start to see a lot of the really fashion-forward brands that also have a mass market component, like the Adidas's of the world, um, the Targets of the world, realizing that this this is a very very unique way to reward your best consumers. Um, and and everyone's in the business of rewarding their best consumers. Uh, that's that's literally what they're in business to do. Um, so I I just think that the, the more efficient you can make it um the, the better it's going to be I, I i agree with you cameron we're gonna we're gonna have peaks and valleys and we talked about that a lot last week like but it'll get better because the actual tech is pulls more friction out of the system yeah i was gonna say i think it'll be interesting to see as the technology evolves where this all goes but yeah fully agree Awesome. Cool. Well, let's shift to the next topic. Um, I think this one was a little bit surprising. Obviously, we've seen a lot of brands picking up their e-commerce sales since COVID, and it looks like the COVID boost e-commerce sales is slowing a little bit. Uh, I think Q3 of last year was the first time GMV uh, was not increasing. It actually decreased by 1%. So I think it's interesting to have a conversation about where we think e-commerce is going. I think so many times I've talked to brands who are like, yeah, we had a great 2020 or we had a great first part of 2021. And we're now we're just trying to figure out what the new normal is. Like, what is the new kind of like, this is our, what our e-commerce sales are. And this is a healthy growth number month over month moving forward because 2020 just inflated it so much. Uh, and then I also think too, you saw so much money kind of pour into e-commerce brands, e-commerce platforms, thinking, okay, this is going to be that jump start that's not going to take over brick and mortar shopping. And now people are realizing, no, this is probably just going to go hand in hand forever with them. Um, so, I mean, Taylor, would love to get kind of your feedback on this first to start and we can kind of go from there. Yeah. I mean, from a lot of exactly right, like a lot of the founders that we advise on the emerging side and have provided kind of similar sentiment recently, which is just that obviously, you know, 2020 was kind of its own case study of a year. And now really they're trying to figure out like what <clears throat> online and e-commerce looks like for them moving forward now that there ha it has kind of plateaued. So I think from, you know, my vantage point when it comes to like, you know, strategy from, you know, a lot of these startup brands or emerging brands in the space, I, I agree. I think it's kind of taking a look at like, what does kind of normalcy look like from an online perspective? And now that things are opening back up in terms of traditional brick and mortar and opportunities to have more on and off premise, you know, sampling opportunities, it's like, what does that kind of hybrid look like? Because up until now, especially for brands that just started at the beginning of COVID, like online was all they had. Um, so it'll be interesting to kind of see what first, you know, it looks like moving forward in terms of overall demand for, you know, I guess, continued online sales, but then also like, what does that hybrid look like? Because again, like prior to COVID, there weren't a lot of opportunities for a lot of these brands to distribute online. And now the runway is there. There's so many different platforms that these companies can utilize, like you had alluded to. So I'm, I'm, it'll be interesting to see like what the kind of what that hybrid mix looks like, you know, in terms of strategy moving forward for a lot of these brands that started during COVID times, especially. 
Yeah, I think it's it's interesting too. Like, what's strategy going to be from the brand side, but then what's the strategy going to be from the retail side, and then how those two kind of meet in the middle so that it's beneficial for everybody. Um, I think that would be super interesting. Um, CJ would love your your um, kind of two cents on this as well. I mean, on on the macro side, I am completely unconcerned. I think it's just like e-commerce is going up and to the right. And then if you drew a line kind of generally on that, that squiggled above it and below it and above it and below it, like when we go back to our high school algebra and you started taking the derivative of that line, that is at any given time going to dictate how people feel about e-commerce on a quarter by quarter basis. And yet take two steps back and it's just always going up and to the right. Um, on, on a micro sense and on how money is getting deployed, I, th- I think you're going to, to see, you know, different thing you know of course it matters in a micro sense and, and especially at the intersection of of retail and brand that you mentioned cameron and, and and we pay attention to it but like really to me this is kind of like i, I i'm not dismissing it it's just a non-story like we're, we're just happened to be in one of the lulls because of the year over year prints and um I, i'm just really really unconcerned and continue to reward the companies that 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 are trying to figure out where the intersection between brand and retail and e-commerce is because eventually it's going to go back up above the line and then then later it'll go back below so it doesn't change our investment strategy in the slightest so obviously all three of us talk to brands you know on a daily basis and we have a lot of exposure to brands kind of just by genesis of what we do um so cj kind of starting with you i mean what are for you the successful brands that are uh approaching kind of this omni-channel um game plan for 2022 what are they focusing on when it comes to e-commerce are they viewing it as hey listen e-commerce is just a break-even platform for us to acquire new customers it's it's basically everything this is how we're growing our business it's it's a marketing strategy i mean how are the best brands in your mind approaching it um gosh that that is a very very open question um like there, there are going to be gradations. Like there, there will always be an example of brands who are unit cost economic positive on their on their their direct to consumer and their e commerce sales, and we'll always preference that because you know that, that, then you have a nice linear growth path. We don't penalize companies necessarily for for having the position over the long term that that D2C and e-commerce is a marketing channel that largely pays for itself, especially because we focus a lot on, on shipping at the end of the day water um, through some kind of beverage. And so like, like that's that's a big aspect that, that affects it there. Um, I, I, am, I am much more interested on the case by case examples when, you know, you know when, when company A comes and says, okay, well, we have um, this tremendous new bricks and mortar distribution partner. And it is going to be a very, very big push for us. So in fact, we are going to scale back on some D2C and focus on coordinating our, our e-commerce spending to match up with this new, this new representation and might that we're gonna be able to push on, on, the, on, on the bricks and mortar side and coordinate the two. And in, in that situation, I'm pro that. So like, this is just three examples to show that it's almost, it's almost impossibly varied but as long as you have a thoughtful strategy, I think we're we're willing to listen and potentially commit capital to support that. But it can't just be, you know, we're 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 putting money into DC and e-commerce because others are too. 
Yeah, Taylor, can you kind of touch on how maybe like beer, wine, and spirits is approaching this right now? I mean, how what are you seeing the successful brands? How are they approaching the e-com and what do they view obviously taking out the outlier of 2020 as like the new normal moving forward with the, with how many restrictions there are obviously in your industry? Yeah, I mean, I think it's similar sentiment, but you know, as to what CJ had said, I think it really just depends case to case by case. And really some people um, have are going to be scaling back considerably, especially as I said, like newer brands that really haven't had the opportunity to do a lot of what we call like liquid to lips <laughs> up until now. Um, just given the opportunity to focus in on priority markets, you know, get boots on the ground in terms of, you know, sales reps, get people to actually try the product in these markets. A lot of these companies can't do everything all at once. So as CJ was alluding to too, it's like prioritization of like funds and strategy. And I even know companies that had to be all DTC for the first year, year and a half online. And now they said for 2022, at least for the next two years, they're actually going to fully fully pull back. But again, it's just, it's case by case. And I think it just depends on kind of where they're at in the trajectory of their business, the overall brand awareness of the company. And I think a lot of these companies that are newer to market do need to, again, focus on, you know, trial, quite frankly, I think, um, again, and then, you know, being able to have a little bit more of that in-person, you know, experiential with the brand, with the product, and then maybe reevaluate like how they want to sell online. But a lot of these people have to pick and choose where they're allocating budget and energy. And I think for a lot of them, it is towards more of the traditional retailers. Yeah. I've been surprised over the last few months, like how many DCC brands we've been signing up for, for on our end who are going omni-channel and thinking about retail much sooner in the life cycle than when I first started the company in 2019, where I was kind of like, Hey, listen, we don't even want to entertain retail for two to three years. It seems like now it's in the, in the foresight of, of most people's minds, especially brand owners, as they see how expensive it is. And with the new Apple updates and how hard it is to acquire customers, I think that kind of nirvana for these brands is being able to drive trial inside of the store and then drive those customers back to subscribing, you know, to a monthly subscription to their product, um, you know, online and those brands that can kind of meld those two, that's where I see a lot of success going, but like CJ and, and Taylor, both like we both said, I definitely don't think it's one size fits all, or, you know, any brand who's looking for an answer on how to uh, approach this is going to find something that suits them just by following what another brand does. Yep. I agree. Sweet. Well, let's flip to the other side. Um, a few articles came out over the last week about how there's a lot of stores increasing their retail presence. So Costco, big loss. Foxtrot obviously just had a big raise. They're um, starting to grow. A lot of discount retailers, Dollar General, things like that. I think over the last decade, a lot of us have seen the news of store closings, uh, stores going bankrupt. I think there was just way too many stores. And I think what we saw over the last decade was a consolidation of stores that just didn't do a good job of updating, way too big of stores, like the traditional department store. Um, and I think newer, smaller store formats are coming. Um, and I think that they're going to hopefully work better and in tandem with e-commerce. Um, but CJ, would love to start with you and just kind of get your thoughts on kind of the increased retail footprint some, that some of these bigger retailers are approaching. And then also the money flowing into new retailers like Choice Market or Fox try and these kind of new retailers that are more bespoke and more focused on curation and consumer experience than anything else. Um, I read a really interesting statistic and this was probably back in like 2018. So it, it, it predates the pandemic. It was basically that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm using relative numbers here because I don't remember the exact numbers, 
the, the, the square footage of commercial real estate per capita in the US, if you index that at 100, then Japan was like something like 25 to 50, Europe was 25 to 50, China was 15 and growing, but like, I mean, massive differences. We, 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 have, we have so much more per um, you know, square foot per capita. Like, and yeah, that's in, in many ways, the national highway system set up that, cre that creation and the suburban flight from the cities, but it's impossible to deny we have too much commercial real estate space and it is contracting. Um, so that's, that's going to always be like the overall headline within that kind of exactly similar to our NFT discussions, like in, in, in e-commerce, there's going to be ebbs and flows in that. And like, there's gonna be times when it's, it's some stores like Target, or I'm sorry, yeah, like Target, like Costco, like Foxtrot are still showing success and, and product market fit with their, with their consumer base. So of course they're going to grow. And especially most of them probably put all their growth plans in 2020 and 2021 off to the side. So it's going to seem like the ones that are working are going to grow like gangbusters in 2022. And I think it's important not to take a false signal. That, 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 is, that is coiled growth that didn't happen in the last two years in concepts that are working. It is not a change in the overall um, shrinkage of the bricks and mortar of space in, in the country. Yeah, no, that's that's yeah, that's interesting to see. Like the last two years, probably stunted some of the things that they wanted to do, and so yeah. it's going to look like there's this huge surge this year. When maybe that's just something that would have been drawn out over three years, but it wasn't. Yeah. Now it's kind of all pushed in, this year. in the names that are working. Yeah. Like, hey, Costco's working great, so they're going to open yeah. up more Costco's. Now, is is it cool that they're opening up 28 new ones in 2022? Absolutely. Would they have probably gone seven, seven, and seven? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think that's, I think that's what we're seeing. Taylor, how about you specifically about kind of these new concept stores? I mean, what's your thought on a, on a Foxtrot? What's your thought on a choice market? Um, obviously like neighborhood goods keeps popping up. Um, do you feel like the shopping experience is going more towards consumer experience? Um, because it seems like the retailers are doing well, have planted their flag and like doing one thing really well, either like, Hey, we're a discount retailer, we're mm -hmm. a bulk club retailer, or Hey, we're all about the consumer and product discovery. And we're going to curate really high end things for you to find inside of our store. Yeah. I mean, I think that Foxtrot's doing a great job at that. I mean, I think there is this element of like, people are, you know, it, there is interest in like that exploration. And I think exactly right. Like once people trust the umbrella, so let's say in this case, it's a Foxtrot and they like the experience of going in store. I think that they will continue to want to go into stores like that to experience things, but also they trust the curation of those companies, right? So there's that trust that's been built. And I think as these companies evolve, I think it'll become even more and more curated, but I, I don't see that going away in terms of interest. And I think if nothing more, I think, you know, there'll just be increased brand loyalty for companies that, you know, on the retail front, you know, not only do they provide, like, I think there was a story about like, you know, kind of everything we're talking about and the rationale, it's like, there is this kind of need for what they call like warm hospitality. I love that idea. And I think that that won't go away. I think that'll continue. And like CJ said, it didn't go away ever. It's just, we had to kind of, you know, hold back on any plans or any type of further innovation in the traditional brick and mortar, given everything that we've been through over the last two years. Um, but I do think like that kind of trust and gold standard of let's use like a Foxtrot, I think people will continue to want to go to places like that, both from like a warm hospitality experiential perspective, but also because they know that 
what is cure, what is being curated or things that, you know, fit their lifestyle and they'll want to, you know, buy or at least consider. So, yeah, I think it's really interesting. Yeah, I think it's going to be fascinating to kind of watch what this next year um, and how it kind of plays out on the retail side of things. But definitely read for Fox tried after their big um, last raise. Um, and I think a lot of these stores too, like at Costco um, and a lot of these discount retailers are, are kind of positioned for really good years. And it's exciting to see um, more growth come in the space. Um, maybe our most polarizing topic, unless there's not really any like hardcore football fans here, but we're going to talk a little bit about Tom Brady this episode, uh, who just launched, uh, it seems like we're talking about a celebrity launch brand every single time. Um, but Brady just launched a clothing brand, a uh, super high-end brand. I think it was interesting to see the approach to this. Um, it was a really higher price brand, um, which I think um, caught a lot of people off guard. I know some local media outlets wrote about the fact that like, hey, this is like not going to be really um, readily accessible to like the everyday fan who might root for Tom Brady. Um, this is not really made for that person. Then who it is, who is it? Because that's who their audience is. Um, and then I think too, it got roasted a little bit on Twitter for like wait, there's no logo on this, or this looks like a clip art football, or this is just, it just says Brady on a sweatshirt. And so then you think about like execution of this. And we talked about last episode too, like how involved are these people, right? We were throwing accolades at the rock last episode, talking about like how kind of dialed they were in. And then CJ, you brought up that great point of like, let's not give them too much credit. Like this is a really well-built machine that they're going into. They understand what the playbook is and they're going to take that rock name and the Terramana brand and they're going to put it through there. And yes, the rocks kind of presence is going to help it get to that 600,000 plus case. But can that be applied to, you know, other categories, other industries? And do we think that that can be applied here? So Taylor, we'd love to know kind of your thoughts on where um, this trend is continuing to go. And, and do you see success kind of uh, in this brand in the future? I mean, I'm, I am not a sports person, but I can tell you that I, I do think that Tom Brady is quite, quite fine. And uh, also, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm kidding, but not kidding, but here's the thing I do know of Tom Brady and I do know, and you guys can correct me because again, I am not a, you know, day-to-day sports fan, but he has quite a following. And like, I feel like recently he started to, and again, this is me speaking not as a day-to-day sports fan. However, feels like he's been really trying recently to kind of develop his own brand. And so, I, again, like as, as we talked about last time, I think there is a toolkit for a lot of these things, whether they talk about beverage or clothing. I mean, he's not the first to do this. I also love the fact that he created, unless I'm off here, that a Brady Blue yeah, like a signature blue. I don't know. I think the price point seems like a bit of a deterrent given like his general audience and loyal fan base, but I don't feel like that this is anything that revolutionary, nor do I think that this is something that, uh, you know, I think, I think that there's obviously some potential here given like his overall cloud and, you know, the, the fans that are devoted to him. And again, he's not the first to do this. So I think as long as he kind of stays on track, there's potential, um, but yeah, I, I'm not, per, per, I'm not personally purchasing any of it, but I think it's interesting. I'll be interested to see where this goes. So, yeah, no, I think you have, you make a good point. He's definitely been more accessible, like, 
uh, post leaving New England. And it's like New England's like a little bit of like a jail compared to like probably Tampa Bay and like the freedom he gets there. So you're starting to see his personality come out like uh, he does actually have an uh, NFT like memorabilia marketplace too, which I think is a really good application for NFTs, right? So, okay, great. I buy a Mon- uh, Joe Montana signed, you know, 49ers helmet. I can understand like where it originated from, who were all the owners, and I can track that on the blockchain. I think that's a really cool application. I think for this, like, uh, it's probably one of those things that gets roasted in the beginning and then ends up being a huge success as they continue to pivot and and get it to where it needs to be. Um, but CJ, would love your your two thoughts on it too. Yeah, I, I I'm really interested on on I'll do some more reading on kind of who's behind it because I think I think what's really instructive is that like kind of similar to that 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 rock the rock Terramana conversation we we're having last time. It, it it was more that the marriage of a of a of a team and a celebrity is what works really well, and in things like Terramana, I think the average person doesn't know that it's like the same team that did Casamigos and they have all the, the relationships necessary. What what I don't know is what's going on behind the scenes here. Like what we do know is that he didn't choose to do it with either Adidas, Under Armour, or Nike, and that's and that could be really cool, and that could have a lot of a lot of success, you know, come to him as a function of not having to share with one of those majors, you know, or, or we might figure out that the team behind this um, can't, you know, you know, can't really finish off behind how big of a name that Brady is. Um, and, and I think this will be a really, a really interesting um, case study because everyone else we've seen like Kanye with Adidas or Jordan with Nike or Steph Curry with Under Armour, like they've all had a partnership with a, a really big existing company in the space. And this is kind of one of the first times that I think, at least from the sports side, I'm sure there are examples on, on, on the other side that, that someone's trying to go it without one of those big backers. Um, so I'm really fascinated to see how this turns out. Um, I do know that, so I, I know the folks who started Autograph, who, who is um, the NFT marketplace that he's involved in. And my understanding is he is, a, a very involved and very strategically oriented thinker on how that's going to work. So I think he definitely is, is on board um, and I'm a fan, but I, I, I want to watch this closely because I think it's a, a really big insight into what can you accomplish with pure celebrity in, in, a, in, a, in an area that is dominated by an oligopoly of, of companies that we kind of are all already know. Yeah, and I think it was kind of fascinating to see like the brand already had over 100,000 followers before launch, like kind of what we touched on last week, like it's almost like these celebrities are building the audience first. Uh, and then they're able to just pump different products and everything through those channels and they're owning that customer. So why not own kind of the, um, you know, the manufacturing and the whole thing as well. So it'll be interesting to see how it works. Um, definitely, um, you know, rooting for the brand to succeed um, off the field, not really rooting for Brady on the field. So we'll see how that all goes. <laughs> um, and then everyone's favorite topic, we'll kind of wrap up here. Um, I don't know if either of you kind of realized, but I've, you know, realized now over the last, you know, few grocery shopping trips I've taken, like my Trader Joe's was pretty much empty, like, you know, yesterday, um, my weekly Trader Joe's like bill is like gone from 150 to 180. And, you know, now it's even creeping close to 200. 
Um, and we, we've talked a little about inflation in previous episodes, but it has continued to rise now to a 40-year high. Uh, it was up 7% year over year um, last month. And I really, you know, kind of interested in, CJ, we can start with you, is what do you think this means to the consumer? And then what do you mean think that this means to kind of the brand? Yeah. Um, I mean, so there's, there's a famous Milton Friedman quote that inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. Um, and I'm not like far be it for me to disagree with one of the foundations of like economics and the Nobel Prize winner, but like I'm not totally sure that that this this is purely a, a monetary phenomenon. I, th- I think we're having some of this is driven by supply chain issues, and some of this is driven by demographics. Um, if you want to take like multiple steps back, like I, I regardless of whether or not the pandemic happened and we had that massive both monetary and fiscal stimulus i think you might have seen an inflation spike through the early 2020s if for no other reason that at this point the average millennial is now in the workforce and the average millennial is now at their at their highest marginal spending time which is kind of your your 30s um and and that and that is that is simultaneously with the fact that not enough of the boomers have left the workforce um, and, and are also still spending at relatively high marginal amounts. So um, I, I, think, I think we have a simultaneous monetary burst and a supply shock and a demand shock. Um, so I, I think that this might be a little bit more, you know, more here to stay and more of a function of demographics than, than other people are pointing out. Um, and therefore, I think you have to invest accordingly. Um, I, I think we have to look at, okay, the, the very best brands are going to be able to pass this cost on to the consumer to some degree. Um, you know, and, and whether that's via retail brands like Trader Joe's that you mentioned or, or consumer brands like Coca-Cola, like we, we might see a flight to those, you know, those, those companies that can actually capture enough of, of the rise in, in cost of goods and pass that on to the consumer. Um, the other place that I'm, I'm going to be watching really, really carefully is there's there are a lot of of companies in CPG that are like at this grow at all costs. I'm going to raise a lot of money. I'm going to burn it to to get my top lineup high, and I am kind of locked into a price point, um, and and I can't go up that much in price point. Otherwise, my growth might slow. At which point. Um, I won't be able to raise as much money to keep the cycle going. I'm, I'm curious what's going to happen to them in this environment and like what's going to happen to acquisitions. Like is Pepsi and Coke and Dr. Pepper Keurig and Procter and & Gamble and all, all these large CPG and F&B companies that have kept the party going by making acquisitions for these fast growing companies, are they going to start to demand a little bit more um, reasonableness and, and price discipline as far as uh, how they go about this. And, and, I, and I don't know yet, um, but I do know that that it's going to be pretty effective across across all, all different kinds of companies. Yeah. And I, I think um, for me, coming from the brand side of things, like it's just, it feels like I've never felt this much pressure from brands when I talk to them. I mean, it's just, they're balancing so many different things. Um, and it just seems like they're really stressed out. I mean, I even had a conversation with a broker um, yesterday, a really big broker for Publix. And they were like, hey, listen, this is like one of the worst times we've ever had, like in our 30 years, like just securing product, like 
all the supply chain issues, like all the issues with prices having to increase to the buyers and having those conversations and then figuring out what our new SRP price is. And so it's just like these little ripple effects, you know, kind of are, are affecting everybody. And we talked in previous episodes about like how this inflation was almost people were saying like, it's coming, it's coming and coming. So people were preliminary, like increasing their prices before it kind of even hit. And now it's like, we're continuing to increase even now as it's starting to show a little bit too. So I would love to know, you know, Taylor on your end, um, do, are the brands that you're talking to that you work with, are they feeling it too? Is there that kind of palpable stress on their side? Definitely. Yeah. And I think it's too, it's figuring out exactly what you said, like what is like the right pricing for things based on all different moving parts. And so it'll be interesting to see, you know, what happens, but I, I definitely agree that, you know, this isn't, I don't foresee this slowing down anytime soon. So it's just a matter of like how everyone will be impacted across the board, given all of this. Um, and I mean, personally too, you know, living in New York, we've just seen, like I see on a weekly basis, just generally similar to you, uh, Cam, outside of, you know, grocery shopping, just going to restaurants. I mean, you know, the price, I jokingly say all the time that the prices of appetizers are now the prices of entrees. And so it's just, I, 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 you know, we leave restaurants and sometimes we just kind of like take a few minutes to have a breather. But, um, you know, I think at the end of the day, I think people have, and will have to continue to get adjusted to this. Cause I, I think we're all saying the same thing, it, you know, this, it's not going to go away right away. And it'll be interesting to see, especially like CJ said on the m side, like what's to come. And I think for general consumers, it's just kind of the acceptance that for right now, at least, or for the immediate future, this is kind of the reality. Um, in the scarcity thing too, I was at Trader Joe's and I, I literally wasn't even able to get like a lemon or a paper towel. I came home empty handed. I mean, it's crazy, but I think everyone's kind of seeing it in different facets of their life, but, you know, from pricing and also to scarcity, it's, you know, it's there for sure. I mean, the, the really interesting thing to keep our eye on, like supply shocks tend to resolve themselves over like year timelines. Demand shocks can sometimes take decades plus to resolve. Um, and, and, and that's where I'm really interested in how this is going to bifurcate. Like, like the last time that we went through an inflationary period that looked like this, which was the, you know, the 70s, almost into like the vocal year, Volcker years. Like, yeah, you had a lot of interesting monetary phenomena going on, but you also had the only other time a generation as large as the millennials, which was the boomers then, were in their highest marginal spending years. Um, so I, I, I think that this, this could take a long time to resolve on the demand side um, and get really, really squirrely. I think, I think the supply side of it will have itself largely sorted out by the end of 2022. Um, so that's, you know, you know so th then it will come down to, okay, of the three buckets, monetary demand and supply, uh, supplies figured out. Um, we have to accept that the, de the, the demand from a generational aspect is going to be squirrely for some time. Now, what's the Fed going to do from a monetary standpoint? If <laughs> if that's not going like way too deep down a rabbit hole for what this <laughs> listener subset is looking for. Yeah, no, it's uh, this is a note to self. I will uh, I will definitely try to end uh, podcast conversations on a more lighthearted, fun topic, so we don't, <laughs> so we, don't we don't go out with like ah. On that note, <laughs> we're all screwed. So, so see, <laughs> Milton Friedman, I guess. <laughs> yeah.
<laughs> yeah, yeah. So for some reason, there's a big listener drop off whenever Milton Friedman is mentioned. <laughs> when I look at the analytics behind the podcast, but all right. Well, yeah, another great episode. Really appreciate chatting with both of you. Uh, we are going to have a guest on for uh, next episode. So stay tuned for that. Uh, if you do want to be on the um, uh, on the podcast, just visit our Notion page um, and I'll put the link in the bio. If you think that there's any good guests that we should be talking to, if there's any subjects that you want us to focus on, feel, please feel free to go to that page and submit them. Also, if you can leave us a five-star review and um, you know a comment too on the podcast, it really helps us for ranking purposes. So if you can take the time out and do that, we greatly appreciate it. And we will be back next week with another great episode. Thanks so much.